0: This morning, I want to ask you to uh, just bow your head with me, join me in prayer. Let's just dedicate this time of opening God's Word to Him and ask Him to prepare our hearts. Heavenly Father, this morning we come to You because we know that You are the One who is the bearer of everything we need. And so we come to Your Word this morning asking You to speak to us And Father, we lay our hearts on the table to you. If there's something you want to change in our hearts, please do so this morning. Uh, I pray you would remove distractions. I pray you would help us to focus on you and your word. I pray that you would speak to each one of us where we need to hear from you. And I pray that our lives would be changed today because of your word. We dedicate this time to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I got to tell you that uh, the message that I'm about to preach, I have been working on since last January. Let me give you an uh, explanation for what I mean. Uh, At the end of every year, when it comes time to turn the calendar page, I really dedicate the last week of the year and the first week of the coming year to sort of focusing on seeking God and trying to get his heart for what he's doing and where he's going and what He wants my life to be about, where He wants to adjust me, where He wants to adjust our church, what He wants to say to us, and and I just seek Him during that time. And this past year, as we turned from 2019 to 2020, that prayer time netted for me a sense that God wanted me to pray and work diligently for unity in the body of Christ that that I should be praying against divisiveness and that made total sense to me because after all uh, there was an election coming right and I remember the last election and I remember how divisive it was And so I thought, wow, we're going to have an election in November and it's going to be divisive and we need to pray that God would help the church to get through that divisiveness and maintain our unity. What I did not know is that we were going to get under the attack of this killer virus that was going to turn our lives upside down, spread throughout the world kill a whole bunch of people, change our way of life. I had no idea that was coming, and I had no idea that when it came, it would be so controversial in terms of how we responded to it. I had no idea at that time that 2020 was going to bring to the forefront issues of social justice that needed to be addressed and dealt with and and that it was going to happen in a way that caused extreme divisiveness among the people in our country, that there was going to be protests and even riots in the streets. I had no idea that there was going to be this issue where uh, the police were now looked at with suspicion by so many people. I had no idea that we were going to be dealing with that sort of thing. I had no idea that our kids were not going to get to go to school this year. I had no idea that that was going to be controversial and people were going to argue about where the kids should be in school, whether the teachers should be in school, and what we should do about all of that kind of stuff. I had no idea that uh, churches were going to be getting fined by the government just for holding worship services. I had no idea that churches were going to be suing the government because they have uh, put restrictions on worship services. I, I could go on and on, but you've lived through it too, right? You know what's been happening, and that's just in the United States, just here in our, in our state of California. But there are people hearing this message all around the world, and you've been dealing with those same kind of divisive issues in other countries, in other places, it has been a divisive year. And so back in January, I started digging into the Word and thinking about what would God have to say to us as a church, especially as the election rolled around. And that, and that climax of divisiveness came at the beginning of November. So I've been planning to dedicate a whole sermon to this topic when the election rolled around. And then recently, a couple of weeks ago, I went online, my friend Ray Johnston preached a great sermon where he talked about this very issue that I was working on in my sermon, and he had an incredible sermon title, and so I stole it from him. And and the title was Separation of Church and Hate. And I just loved that title, and I even stole some of his points. So, Kudos to Pastor Ray. Thank you for your help and support in allowing me to steal some of this stuff and add it to what God was already giving me. Um, So if you like this sermon, then you can thank me for that. If you hate the sermon, call Pastor Ray at Bayside Church up in Sacramento and complain. Um, I think this is the most divided our country has ever been. I've mentioned that multiple times recently. But let me be clear about something. I love this country. I I realize that patriotism is not as popular among a lot of people today as it used to be. But I want you to know I'm patriotic and I, and I don't hide that. I stand for the flag. I put my hand over my heart. I sing the national anthem. Uh, I thank God for the founding fathers and I pray for our leaders. I love this country. Having been to so many other countries and seen the difference, I am thankful that with all of the problems that our country has, it is still an amazing, amazing blessing to live in America and be able to experience what we experience in the United States Of America. But here's the thing that I want you to understand I am not preaching this message for the sake of this country. In fact, I am not preaching this message um, with America really in mind at all, because here's the thing nations rise and fall, but the kingdom of God will stand forever. And that is where my primary allegiance lies. I'm not speaking today as a Republican or a Democrat. I'm not speaking as a conservative or a liberal. I'm not speaking even as an American today. I'm speaking as a shepherd of the flock of God. I'm speaking as a member of the family of God. I'm speaking as a Blood bought, spirit filled child of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He whose kingdom is not of this world, but at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, this is not about how to save America, it's about how to glorify God and represent Him well in this world wherever you might be. And we're going to begin, we're going to be in the Scripture heavily today. So I want you to turn with me to First Peter. Now last week we were in 2 Peter and First Peter, believe it or not, is right in front of 2 Peter. It's at the end of your New Testament. You should be able to find it rather quickly if you just turn to the back and then move to the left. But I want you to go to First Peter chapter 2 and we're going to pick it up in First Peter 2 beginning in verse 9. This is Peter writing to the people of God. Here's what he says. "'But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.' Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. He's saying that we're aliens and strangers. He's saying that whatever nation you're a part of, whatever community you're a part of, you don't exactly fit if you're a follower of Jesus. You're an outsider to this world system. And he calls us, the church, a holy nation, the people of God called out apart even from the rest of the world. And he says that as aliens and strangers, we are to live in such a way that those who see us will glorify God. Paul puts it even more succinctly in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. He says this, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. See, one of the things I love about being a Christian is that my identity in Christ trumps everything else. One of the things I love about Jesus It's his ability to state the obvious in a way that is profound. We can give you some examples, right? Things you've heard before. He said, you can't take the speck out of your brother's eye if there's a log in your own eye. He said, if you build your house on a rock, it will stand against the storms. But if you build your house on the sand, it will fall when the storms come. He said... Uh, A man cannot serve two masters. These are all like no-duh statements, right? Obvious statements. But he didn't make the statements to teach what the statement is teaching. He made those statements to teach a profound truth by illustrating it with these things that everybody agrees on. He would often say things like this when he was talking about something in order to make a larger point. Well, one time when Jesus was being accused of casting out demons uh, by the power of Satan, he made one of those profound but simple statements. Here's what he said A house divided against itself cannot stand. A house divided against itself cannot stand. Now, listen, I care deeply about what happens to the United States of America. And I'm convinced that God cares about the United States of America, but I am far less concerned today about what happens in the United States than I am about what happens in the kingdom of God. And I think it's a strength, not a weakness, that in the church, in this holy nation, this group of called out ones, that in the church there is incredible diversity. That's a strength. We're made up of a diverse group of people, different ages, different ethnicities, different races, different languages, different spiritual gifts. And the list goes on and on and on. But it is a disaster when we allow those things that separate us or distinguish us to be more important than that which brings us together, which is our relationship with Jesus Christ and our calling in His name. So let me be clear. I am a Christian who happens to be a male. I'm a Christian who happens to be an American. I'm a Christian who happens to have light skin. I'm a Christian who happens to belong to a specific uh, political party. I'm a Christian who happens to have no hair. I'm not a bald guy who happens to be a Christian. I'm not an American who happens to be a Christian. I'm not a male who happens to be a Christian. I am a Christian first, foremost, and throughout. That's what defines us as followers of Christ. The other things are important. They matter to me. But those are not the things that define me. I am a child of God, an ambassador for Christ. Now, let me see if I can make this a little plainer. Um, I don't know if you're a fan of NASCAR uh, auto racing. I'm not a big fan of NASCAR. I'm bored to death watching guys turn left. I'm a Formula One guy. But but the thing with NASCAR is, as you've probably seen, the cars are absolutely covered with decals and stickers. For example, uh, the M&M's car. You've probably seen this on TV, right? It looks like this. Look at all these stickers, M&M's all across the hood, all across the side. You would never mistake that car for being anything other than the M&M's car. It's it's a Joe Gibbs Racing Team car. It's driven by Kyle Busch, but it's the M&M's car, right? And most of us, if we've seen any races, we've seen this car because uh, he wins a lot. So here's the M&M's car. And now on this M&M's car, there are other sponsors. Like right here, it says Goodyear. I don't know if you can see that. Here it says 3M, and over here it says Interstate Batteries. Like, there's a bunch of little stickers on this car, but this is not the Interstate Batteries car. This is the M&M's car. Do you know what it costs to be the main sponsor of a car like this? 660000 $660,000. Now, you may be thinking, wow, $660,000 a year to sponsor a car. No, 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 not a year, $660,000 per race. Now, if you want to put one of these little stickers on, you could do that for $50,000, $75,000 a week. But if you want to be the main sponsor, when the car goes by, everybody says that's the M&M's car, you have to pony up some money. Guys, listen. Jesus paid a huge price to have the main sponsorship of your life. If you call yourself a Christian, you belong to Him. The other things about you are important. Your gender, your race, your age, your political affiliation, your nationality. All those things are important. They matter. But those are the little stickers. Jesus is the sponsor of your life. So let's get back to first things first. As Christians, we are ambassadors for Christ. We may be aliens. We may be strangers. We may be living in a land that is not our own. But we're here as ambassadors for Christ. We're here to love God. We're here to love people. We're here to change the world. You only have a relatively short time on this earth to make an impact. And here's the problem I see in our society today. Most people are settling for making a point when we should be striving to make an impact. Most people are willing to just make a point, and we use social media, and we use billboards, and we we shout in the streets, and we carry signs. We're making a point. And some of those are good points that need to be made. But we are settling for making a point when we should be living to make an impact. You're only here for a brief moment. Your life goes by like that. Are you going to make it about winning an argument? Or are you going to make it about winning the world for Christ? Most of the things we get so upset about, most of the things that divide us are temporary things. Jesus compares them to wood, hay, and stubble, and he says they're all going to burn. But some things are everlasting, like God and his word and the souls of men. And as the people of God, we are losing influence on those issues of eternal significance because we are so busy making a point about some of the things that don't have eternal significance. Making a point is easy especially in these days of social media where everybody gets a platform. But making an impact requires sacrifice. It requires humility. It requires an eternal perspective. That's hard for us to get when we're caught up as if the main thing in our lives should really be one of the little stickers on the back of the bumper. I want to be a person who God uses to change the world. I want us to be a church that God uses to change the world. And to do that, we may have to sometimes forego making a point in order to make an impact. Think about the early church. They turned the world upside down for Jesus. And they did it without any political power. They did it without any leaders and places of authority in their society. They did it without any organizations. They did it without any buildings. They did it without any agendas other than being on God's agenda. And through those spirit filled people, God started a wave that has swept across time and space and continues. To be the most powerful impact in our world today. The influence of the early church has outlasted every great empire in human history. The influence of the early church has proven more powerful than all of the weapons that man has developed over all time. The influence of the early church has continued no matter what else was happening. In the world, take a deep breath and take that in. Because some of us are so nervous and so upset and so scared about our social agenda, our political agenda, our economic agenda not getting pursued that we forget that no matter what happens in those areas, the kingdom of God stands strong, rooted in the foundation of Jesus Christ himself who is our rock. That is what I'm called to be a part of. That is what you're called to be a part of. That is what we together are called to be a part of. Everything else is small potatoes by comparison. So how do we do it? How do we go from just making a point to making an impact? How do we change the world? Well, how did the early church do it? For starters, here's what we should notice. The early church built bridges to those they were far away from. They built bridges. Instead of noticing those people who weren't like them and saying, well, this is our camp and that's your camp. You stay over there and we're going to stay over here. They built bridges to the people they were the furthest away from. Jesus sets the early example in this. Jesus' ministry is a perfect example of this, right? Everybody else wants the lepers to stay away. What does Jesus do? goes to the lepers. Everybody else wants to stay away from the tax collectors. What does Jesus do? Embraces tax collectors. He embraces the Samaritans. He reaches out to immoral people. He goes out of his way again and again and again to make connections to those who are far away from him. And if you read the book of Acts, you see this happening over and over and over. How did the early church turn the world upside down? Read the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8 There's there's an Ethiopian who has come to uh, Jerusalem to worship. He is from another country. He has another religious background. He's of a different race. And he's on some country road out of the middle of nowhere. And God sends Philip to him. And Philip meets him, embraces him shares with him the scripture, leads him to a relationship with Jesus, and baptizes him that day before he sends him back to Ethiopia as the first Christian to bring the gospel to Africa. In Acts chapter 10, God appears to Peter in a dream and he says, I want you to go to this guy's house. And Peter says, no, no, it's unclean. He has to go to the house of this Roman named Cornelius And Peter says, no, no, we're not supposed to associate with them." And God says, trust me, I'm doing something bigger than you can imagine. And Peter goes to Cornelius' house and there are a bunch of pagan Gentiles gathered there. And Peter speaks the word of God to them. And for the first time, Gentiles are swept into the church. These people who are so different than Peter and all the other Christians at that time. In Acts chapter 13, we have this church in a place called Antioch. Where all of the leaders are from different ethnic backgrounds, different economic backgrounds, different places, and they get this vision from God to reach out to the unreached world. And they send Paul and Barnabas as the first major missionaries to the Gentiles. And they go out and begin to spread the gospel among the Gentiles. In Acts chapter 15, so many Gentiles are coming to Christ that they have to call a council. In Jerusalem with all the apostles to discuss whether or not Gentiles should have to become Jews before they can become Christians. And there at the Council of Jerusalem in the first century, Acts chapter 15, they come to the conclusion that you don't have to be a Jew to be a Christian. And Gentiles are welcomed into the church. In Acts chapter 17, Paul goes to Mars Hill and he sees all of the idols and he's surrounded by idols and he goes to these Greek people, these philosophers, and he begins to build bridges. And he says, gentlemen, I see that you are a very religious people. And instead of ripping them for what's wrong with their religion, he tells them what they don't know. Let me introduce to you the God you've never seen. And he brings the gospel to Greece. It's an incredible thing. And as you read Acts, it just goes on and on and on. Do you see a pattern here? The early church changed the world by building bridges. They built bridges to people they were far away from. And not just with their arguments and their philosophies, but with their actions. And that's the story of the church throughout the ages. How did the Christian church go from being a ragtag little group of disciples to being the major force in shaping the world? How did that happen? Well, in the second century, right, you know, after the closing of the book of Acts, in the second century, the Roman Empire was hit by a devastating pandemic. Can you imagine? <laughs> A devastating pandemic swept throughout the Roman Empire. It was a disease that they had no idea how to cure, but it was incredibly contagious, and people were dying by the tens of thousands. It was horrific. So you know what happened? The nobles, the politicians, the medical workers, they fled to the countryside. Whereas in the cities, the people were dying, and there was no one there to help them. Do you know who stayed? The Christians. The Christians. And the Christians decided that even if we don't know, uh, if we're not trained in medicine, we can nurse people, we can comfort people, we can encourage people, even while they're sick and dying. And historians tell us that of those who survived that plague, two-thirds of them lived because of the impact of the Christians who nursed them and cared for them in their sickness. But you know... What happened in the 3rd century? The exact same thing. (laughs) Another plague, another devastation, another fleeing of the nobles and all of the pagans into the city, I mean, away from the cities, into the countryside, and once again, the Christians took up the responsibility of ministering to people and caring for people. People were dying by the thousands, just dying, except hardly any of the Christians died. Even though they were there nursing those who were sick and dying, most of them didn't get sick. And the people noticed this. And they said, your God must be strong. And people began coming to Christ. And revival broke out throughout the Roman Empire all the way down into Alexandria and Egypt. And revival broke out because people got to see Christians acting like Christians during a pandemic. And when the emperor and all the politicians returned... They tried to get paganism going again in the Roman Empire, and it never gained traction again because of the witness and the behavior of Christians. And the list of examples goes on and on throughout history. How did the early church make a world-changing impact? They built bridges to those who were far from them, racially, religiously, philosophically, politically, even geographically far from them. They built those bridges. And they did it without compromising the truth of God's Word. If we're ever to really be a church that God uses to radically alter this world, you and I are going to have to become people who care about more about making an impact than we do about making a point. And we're going to have to become people who build bridges to those who are far from us rather than putting up barriers who keep them away here's what jesus said about this matthew chapter 5 take your bibles go to the gospel of matthew beginning of the new testament matthew chapter 5 i have referred to this passage probably 10 times in the last year but let's look at it again sermon on the mount matthew chapter 5 beginning in verse 14. here's what jesus says to his followers You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He has said that we have to play the role of light in darkness. The early church built bridges to those who were far from them so that They could be that light. And building bridges is really about relationships. I heard uh, Pastor Jason Kane say this. I thought it was great. He said, Building genuine relationships with those who are different than us leads to empathy, and empathy leads to unity. Folks, we are so divided as a nation, and that kind of division even threatens the church of Christ. But here's the thing you can't just make a leap from disunity to unity. You have to build a bridge through relationships. You need to get to know people who vote different than you. You need to get to know people who look different than you. You need to get to know people who think different than you. And I'm not just saying meet them, I'm saying get them in your lives. Listen, develop empathy, begin to care. And when that happens, unity is built. Let me ask you this, how are you doing with those people in your life who are a chasm away from you politically, socially, economically, racially, or whatever the case may be? Have you walked away from them? I've heard so many people say, I've just unfriended all these people who disagree with me politically because I just don't want to see any of their posts anymore. Really? We're just going to unfriend people. We're going to stop... Relating to people. I heard somebody say last week, yeah, I, there's a whole side of my family I'm just not speaking to during this election time. Really? We're just going to not speak to people. We're just going to separate ourselves into our little camps and we're going to forget about the fact that we don't know it all either. You don't have to agree with people uh, on everything in order to build unity unity is not uniformity we don't have to all be the same and we shouldn't all be the same but we should have a unity that is greater than that which separates us in Acts chapter 2 the early church is described as being of one heart and one mind sharing all things in common intent on one purpose Is that because there was nothing different about them? Were they all the same? Absolutely not. Remember the time of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? People from all these different places who spoke all these different languages and had all these different cultures, that was the church that turned the world upside down. You don't think they had differences? You don't think they had different cultural points of view? They were so different in so many ways, but the thing that they had in common was Jesus. Let me sum it up like this. As Christians, we don't have to all look alike. We don't all have to have the same experiences. We don't even have to all speak the same language or come from the same country. We don't have to agree with one another on everything. But let's be clear about one thing. That which we have in common, Jesus Christ, is far more important than the sum total of all the things that separate us. Now, In nine days, there's going to be an election. And some people who are listening to this right now are going to be thrilled with the outcome of that election. And others are going to feel heartbroken because of the outcome of that election. But as Christ followers, what are we going to do on Wednesday morning, November the 4th? Whether our side won or lost... How are we going to live come November 4th? How about this? Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. If the new president is not the guy you wanted, it's okay because no matter who's in the White House, Jesus is on the throne. And if your guy loses, you're going to need to remember that. And by the way, if your guy wins, you're going to need to remember that too because no politician is going to be our savior. If you're putting our, your hope in a politician, you are going to be sadly disappointed no matter who gets elected. Jesus alone is the savior of this world. He alone is the hope of this world. I want to read you a passage in Jeremiah chapter 17. Now, uh, Just turn there real quick. Old Testament, book of Jeremiah. Mark it down in your notes because I'm doing this fast because I'm running out of time. Jeremiah chapter 17, beginning in verse 5. This is amazing. Here's Jeremiah speaking for God. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. Really? Cursed? What will that look like? verse 6 for he will be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness a land of salt without inhabitant blessed is the man who trusts in the lord and whose trust is the lord for he will be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes but its leaves will be green and it will be it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Two kinds of people. One is going to be cursed like a dried up bush in the desert. The other is going to be blessed like a tree that is planted by streams of water. Now, what is the difference between the one who's blessed and the one who's cursed? The cursed person has put his hope in mankind. And the blessed person puts his hope in the Lord. Guys, during this political season, if your hope is in a political party, if your hope is in the passage of a bill, if your hope is in a a Supreme Court justice, if your hope is in someone being elected president, you're putting your hope in the wrong place. If you want to be blessed, put your hope in Christ. He's the hope of the world. Now, some of us are going to struggle to find hope if things don't go the way we want with this election or with social justice issues or with the coronavirus or with the economy or whatever but i want to read to you something else written by jeremiah it's in the book of lamentations if you're in jeremiah the next book to the right is the book of lamentations and yeah the book is just what its name says it's a bunch of complaints about how terrible things are and jeremiah writes this book and i want to write i want to read to you from chapter 3 beginning in verse 19 Jeremiah, I mean, not Jeremiah, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and the bitterness. He's been talking about that for two chapters. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to my mind. Therefore I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope in Him. Look at verse 21. This I recall to my mind, therefore I have hope. Take the word mind and circle it, and the word hope and circle it, and draw a line between them. Because you get to decide what you set your mind on, who you set your mind on, and that will determine whether you experience the hope of Christ. Circumstances cannot steal your hope as long as you keep your eyes on Jesus. You need to remember that on Wednesday, November 4th. And that hope, combined with your good works, will be the light that shines in the darkness for all the world to see. Because here's the thing no matter who gets elected, we're going to get disappointed. No politician. No political party has the power to transform the hearts of people. Do the platforms matter? Yes, they do. Does the character of the people matter? Of course it does. But that's not where our hope lies. So if you're a Christian, your assignment is to build bridges rather than putting up barriers. Your assignment is to serve others rather than alienating them because they're different than you. Your assignment is to focus on Jesus no matter what. When we do that, the world will see the light, they will glorify our Father who's in heaven, and we might just get a chance to see revival in our land. I want to see that. I want to be a part of that. Don't you? Don't you? Join me in prayer. Father, as your people, we come before you. And we realize that in many cases, we have put up barriers instead of building bridges. In many cases, we have settled for making a point when we should have been striving to make an impact. In many cases, we've taken our eyes off you and made these other things the most important things. But God, as we as individuals, as we as a community, as we as a nation go through hard times, once again, we turn our eyes to you. We confess that you alone are our hope. We pray that you do something amazing and that your will will be done in our midst. We ask these things in Jesus' precious, precious name.